Hi, my name is Christy Kramer, and this is Michigan Unsolved, the true crime podcast that is solely focusing on unsolved cases in Michigan. There is no case too small. My goal is to give victims of unsolved crimes the voice they deserve. everyone. Welcome back. When I first decided to do this podcast a few months back, I honestly just thought it was going to be as simple as pulling up some cases online and then just kind of recapping them for you guys. I honestly did not realize the amount of time and effort that goes into doing these things. So I really wanted to give props out there to all the other podcasters, especially ones who are doing true crime, because there is so much information about every case out there, and you really want to make sure that you provide the most accurate information. So once you compile everything, you kind of then have to go back and like validate things. And it's just, it's a lot of work. And It's worth it because like I said, I've said multiple times, it's all about giving the victims a voice and that's really what I want to do here. So I don't mind. Honestly, I don't sleep a whole lot. So I spend a lot of time at night and just working on the cases and, you know, I'll be typing into my phone or on my iPad, just kind of collecting data. But one thing that I've noticed listening to other podcasts is that there's a lot of banter that goes on at the start of the podcast, especially when there's multiple people hosting. Now, obviously, this is just me and the microphone, so there's not really a whole lot of banter going on. But I did kind of want to share something with you guys that I thought was kind of cool. As I've mentioned before, I have uh, two dogs. I have a two-year-old golden doodle named Bailey and an almost seven-month-old cockapoo named Ozzy. And Ozzy's been with us for, actually, today marks two months that we've had Ozzy. And we rescued him from a rescue group in Indiana. And it's definitely been an adjustment, especially mainly for Bailey, because um, she went from being an only dog to sharing the spotlight. (laughs) But they do a lot of things together, and they are quite funny. So... I, when I when I come into work in the mornings, I usually tell my coworkers about some of their crazy antics, and one of them had suggested that I create them an Instagram account. And honestly, like outside of the Ooh, let's just post this picture, I really didn't know what I was doing. So I played around with it a little bit, and I created an account for them, and I learned how to do like the reels and the videos and adding in music and all that kind of stuff. And within a couple of days of having some of their crazy videos posted, we were contacted about, we were contacted from a company and asked to be a brand ambassador for a dog bandana line. So in the next couple of weeks, um, Bailey and Ozzy will be modeling some really cool dog bandanas and, They will be, um, like I said, they're brand ambassadors for this particular company, which I'm not going to name at this time until they actually start the process. 
but I just thought it was kind of cool because, you know, they are, um, they are characters. I always say they are the epitome of a, um, older sister and a younger brother. Ozzy is constantly annoying Bailey. And I told her, unfortunately, it doesn't get much better because I too, even though I'm 45, I have a younger brother and yikes, <laughs> which is a joke. He, um, my brother and I, we get along really well. We actually live together and, um, I honestly don't know what I would do without him. He's, he's pretty awesome. So, so yeah, so like I said, I'll keep you guys updated on that. I am, it's pretty cool. And, um, my cuties definitely deserve the attention. So, so with that, let's jump right into our case. Um, we, so May 24th, 1990 was the Thursday before Memorial Day. So if you were waking up um, that particular morning in mid-Michigan, you would have been greeted by blue skies and mild temperatures. And as you know, Memorial Day is a technically like the official start of summer and here in Michigan you would be seeing thousands of people traveling north to inland lakes or traveling either east or west to the shores of the Great Lakes you know quaint coastal towns beaches just really just starting to enjoy your long weekend and a lot of people you know, if you've ever driven north or east or west in Michigan, there's really only a couple of ways you're going to go. You're going to go north on I-75. You're going to go west on 96 or possibly 94. And then there's a couple of routes you could take east. And these highways at on long weekends are crazy busy. So I know personally in the past, when we've gone away from Memorial Day, we would leave the Thursday before because it tends to be a little bit less traffic. Friday is you're going to get, it's going to be crazy on Friday. But Thursday, while the traffic will be a little bit heavier, you're going to be better off. So um, that Thursday morning, 30-year-old Paige Renkowski woke up with a very full day ahead of her. She was not going out of town for the holiday, but she did have a lot of plans for that day. She was planning on taking a quite a long drive, actually. Her mom was going to the airport and Paige had volunteered to take her. And then after she was going to drop her mom at the airport, she was going to meet her friend for lunch and then that afternoon, her fiance was going to be playing in a softball game. So she was planning on going to watch the game. Unfortunately, her day did not go as planned because after being seen on the side of the highway, and this was the highway that would have taken her back home, a highway that she'd driven so many times. So after being seen, on the shoulder of this highway, Paige Ronkowski was never seen again. So we have to ask, where is Paige? Paige Marie Ronkowski 
was born February 2nd, 1960, to artists and Carl Renkowski. She was the second of four daughters, and her sisters were Tammy, Cheryl, and Michelle. All four of these sisters were very close, and they all loved each other very much. In her younger years, Paige enjoyed cheerleading and dancing, and she even did some modeling. She loved to sing, and she was part of the theater group in school. But most of all, Paige loved children, and she was known as a very popular neighborhood babysitter. It was to nobody's surprise when Paige decided to get her degree in early childhood education. After earning her associates, she became she began working as a substitute teacher at a local childhood at a local child care center. And she was also continuing her education so that she could become a full-time teacher and she had a desire to work with deaf children. Paige lived in DeWitt, Michigan, which was a suburb north of Lansing with her fiance, Steve. Paige and Steve met at a Michigan State University hockey game in 1987. And after dating for a while, they became engaged and they were joyfully planning a wedding November of 1994. I'm sorry, November of 1990. Two of Paige's sisters were at that time living in Georgia. And since it was a long holiday weekend, her mom, Artis, was going to fly down for a visit. As I mentioned, Paige had volunteered to drive her mom to the Detroit Metropolitan Airport in Romulus, which was about 90 minutes away from her home. Paige left her home in DeWitt and drove the approximate 15 miles to her mom's house in Okemos. This was another town near Lansing, but this one just to the east. Paige had a little red MR2 sports car that she loved, but it wasn't exactly the most practical car to drive her mom and her luggage to the airport in. So instead, she parked her car in the driveway and they climbed into her mom's 1986 silver Oldsmobile Calais. This was her mom's work car, but it was registered to her mom. They arrived at DTW, which is Detroit Metropolitan Airport, between 11 and 11.30 a.m., as I mentioned, after he, she dropped off her mom, she left the airport and drove approximately 20 minutes to Griffin Park in Canton, Michigan to have lunch with her friend. Her friend has not been named in any of the interviews that I've seen or any of the documentation, but she was thoroughly checked out and she was cooperated. She was cooperated with the police. Her friend had a small child, and as I mentioned, Paige loved children, so they went to the park and they enjoyed lunch, and Paige played for, with the child for a while. After leaving the park, she stopped at a convenience store at the near Ford, on Ford Road, just west of 275. From Griffith Park, she likely would have taken Sheldon Road to Ford Road and then stopped at the store before getting on the freeway, which would have been I excuse me, I-275. The clerk at the store says she was there between 2.30 and 2.45. The clerk is pretty sure of this because he very clearly remembers Paige because of her distinctive clothing. 
She was wearing a white silk blouse and loose, vibrant floral print pants. And on her, around her neck, she wore a lawn beaded necklace that had green and gold beads and matching earrings. The clerk even commented about the necklace. So this was just like, it was in his, you know, he very clearly remembered her. This is actually the last sighting of, like the last verified sighting of Paige. So it's, it's actually really good that he does remember this. At the convenience store, she bought one bottle of beer and it was placed into a brown paper bag. After leaving the store, she was going to head back to her mom's house to pick up her car and then go home to get ready to go to Steve's softball game. But like I said, she did not make it home. According to multiple witness accounts, Paige and the Silver Oldsmobile were stopped on the westbound shoulder of I-96 near the Fowlerville exit. The first call to the police came in at about 3.20 to report an abandoned vehicle. Now, the Fowlerville exit was approximately 55 miles from the convenience store that she was seen at. And at the time, in 1990, the speed limit on 275 and I-96 were 65 miles per hour. Now, if you know anything about this section of Michigan, um, I-275, the, the route that she would have taken would have been I-275 north to the I-96 west interchange, and then I-96 she would have taken towards Okemos to pick up her car. Okemos was approximately 23 miles from her location near the Fowlerville exit. So just to kind of give you an idea of the timeline there, it, it does fit from the time that she was seen at the convenience store and then to the time that it was she was for, her car was first reported on the side of the road. Multiple reports state that at about 3.30 p.m., Paige was seen outside of her car on the shoulder of the freeway with two men. Some accounts say that the men were African-American, and others say that, they may have, that the, per, the men may have been Hispanic. Multiple people state that they have also saw a dark red or maroon minivan. Most people say that Paige was parked in front of the van, and a few state that the van was parked in front. Now, this is, I find interesting, because, and I have not actually seen this theory anywhere, but when you think about it, depending on which direction you're going on the freeway, whether, whether you're going east or westbound, if you're looking at the car in one direction, it's going to look like the car is in front of the minivan. But if you're going on the from the other direction, it could very well look like it's behind. So that's just something to think about why there is such a difference in those accounts of where the van was parked, whether or not it was in the front or the back of Paige's car. So some of the witnesses claim that Paige was gesturing or throwing her hands in the air. And at least one person reported seeing that one of the men placed his hand on her shoulder. And then another person stated that they saw a man leading her towards the van by the elbow. 
again, I just want to remind you that the all of these accounts are people going 65 miles an hour on the freeway. I want you to think about driving on the freeway 65 miles an hour. Chances are you're probably going over 60 miles an hour. You're only getting a split second to look on either side of the road. So you're not going to be retaining a whole lot of detail. Yeah, you may have seen something, but the a lot of these eyewitness accounts, and I'm doing the finger quotes again, are fairly detailed. And that kind of bothers me a little bit because it's it's only a split second. I mean, since I've been researching this case and I've seen the amount of these quote unquote eyewitness accounts, when I'm on the freeway, I am purposely looking to the side and looking ahead of me to kind of gauge that reaction, that reaction time and what I can take in. And this is a planned moment for me. This is me actually trying to take in my surroundings and I am not getting nearly as much retained information that these people were getting in a split second without it being planned. So while I would love to believe these eyewitness accounts, excuse me, these eyewitness accounts, I just don't know how much of that I believe. So, I mean, like I said, there are quite a few of them and I'm sure there is truth to them, but regarding actually seeing particular moments, like grabbing her, you know, putting her, putting a hand on her shoulder, take, leading her by her elbow, I just don't know how much of that I can believe. Um, some people do say that there could have been a third man in the van. Again, I just don't, I don't know how much truth there could be to that. I really don't. Um, now this one, this, this eyewitness account, I definitely believe, um, one man claims that approximately 3.30, he was traveling westbound towards Lansing and he saw Paige with her car outside of her car and, um, he saw the maroon minivan and I, I believe he saw the men. I'm not hundred percent positive, but he continued on his way. And then at 7.30 PM, he came as he was tr traveling back eastbound he saw that Paige's car was still there. He did not see Paige. He did not see the minivan. And he did not like the way that felt. He said it was very disconcerting. And he did not like the way the situation looked. So he called the police. Um, at that point, multiple other calls had come into the police and um, the Livingston County Sheriff's Office finally sent out an officer. When the officer arrived on the scene at 8 p.m., he found that th this is where it gets crazy. And this is where the mistake occurs. Um, when the officer arrived on the scene at 8 p.m., he found the car idling. The driver's door was unlocked. The keys were in the ignition and the radio and the lights were on. 
he found Paige's purse and wallet in the car as well. And her shoes were on the floor of the driver, on the driver's side. As I said, unfortunately, at the time, the responding officer did not feel that anything was suspect. So he tagged the car as abandoned and put in an order to have it towed. Now, like I said, this was an error, a very big error. I'm pretty sure you can understand why. Um, if you've ever seen a, tar a car towed away, you know that it's going to be touched multiple times. My son um, bought a vehicle. My, actually, my son was in an accident and totaled his car and we had to have it towed out of our driveway. And I mean, this thing was touched so many different times by the by the tow company. When they lift, they hoisted it in the air to put it up on the flatbed so everything in the car was going to get shifted around and it, it was touched and messed with. It's not to mention it was moved. It was towed from the actual spot. And even the police have stated they do not know exactly where her car was parked. Um, some of the witnesses have actually like took taken police to that area and said this is where it was but they do not know for sure exactly where it was so um prior to the police um prior to the police responding to the call uh, Steve Page's fiance had been checking the crowd at the softball game and waiting for Paige to arrive, which, as you know, she did not. So after the game, Steve went home and Paige was not there. Remember, this is 1990. Cell phones were not really, they weren't in use. And he called Paige's mom's house, but there was no answer. And that made sense because Artis was in Georgia. So then Steve drove to artist's house about 9 p.m. and he saw that Paige's car was still parked in the driveway. Well, obviously this is extremely concerning to him, so he was able to gain access to the house and he when he gets in the house, he sees that there is a message on the answering machine and I'm sure at that moment he was hoping that it was Paige leaving a message but it was not. It was from the police letting artists know that her card had been towed after being found abandoned on the shoulder of I-96 and it was taken to a tow yard. Uh, at that point, Steve called the police to report Paige missing and then he called artists to let her know what was going on. Um, at that point, artists and her daughters made their way to Michigan um, so that they could join in uh, searching for Paige. Uh, once the police were aware that Paige, you know, did not abandon the vehicle and that she was missing, uh, they began their investigation. But unfortunately, most, as I said, the damage had already been done. Since the car was towed with the scene, without the scene being processed, the exact location and position of the car is not known. No crime scene was processed and no photos were taken on the shoulder of the highway. 
Um, once the car was brought in for investigation, it had already been subjected to outside to the outside elements, multiple people touching it, as well as the shifting from the towing. Um, once they were able to process it, the following was found in the car. Paige's shoes were actually on the floor of the driver's side front seat. So one of them, I believe, was kind of wedged underneath the seat a little bit. But I'm going to have pictures posted on the Michigan Unsolved Facebook page of the interior of the car so that you can see how it was um, photographed once they realized that, you know, a crime had likely taken place. Um, I did speak to her family. They state that driving barefoot wouldn't have been unusual for her, but they can't say for sure that it was something that she did daily. Um, I do know people, I do know somebody who drives a long distance for work and he drives, um, barefoot most times. So I know for some people I couldn't do it, but I know some people do. So, um, I do believe it would be safe to say that if, she did drive barefoot. She would not have gotten out of her car and walked any kind of great distance on the shoulder of the highway barefoot. That just wouldn't be safe. And it would, let's be honest, it would be fairly painful. I mean, highways have broken glass and rocks and all kinds of um, stuff. So I think it's safe to say she, she, I think if it had been something that she had planned on doing, she would have put her shoes back on. Um, her purse and her wallet were also found in the car. Her wallet still actually contained the money that she had on her that day. So it's fairly obvious that robbery um, was not the plan. Um, or if it was the plan, it did not end up that way because the money and her purse were still there. The uh, passenger seat also contained some personal papers and the paper bag that contained the bottle of beer that she had purchased at the convenience store was found on the floor of the passenger seat. It is reported that the bottle had been opened. Um, I've seen a lot of back and forth discussion about this bottle. I know a lot of people are like, oh, she was drinking and driving. Look, there, unless... You know for a fact that she opened the bottle. I don't think that it's it's fair for us to speculate on that. Um, for all we know, the person or persons that took her opened it. Or, you know, let's, I'm assuming back, you know, I don't, I'll be honest, I don't drink beer. So I'm thinking in 1990, those were all the kind of, um, if it was a bottle, it, you needed a bottle opener to open it. Did she have a bottle opener in her car? I don't know. I'm, maybe I'm wrong, but um, I didn't think. Back then, the bottles of beer had screw tops. I really don't know, but um, it just seemed a little odd to me that the bottle was opened. Um, but but really, who knows? I mean, I, I don't know. It There wasn't any notice that it had been, like, spilled it just seemed it just seemed very odd to me that this bottle was opened in the car. Um, after processing the car, they did find um, multiple fingerprints that they have not been able to identify. 
And what they call one of their most solid pieces of physical evidence is actually a partial palm print. Um, they, they said that this palm print was actually on the hood of the vehicle. And one of the eyewitnesses claimed to have seen one of the men that Paige was talking to with his hand on the hood of the vehicle. So this palm print could prove to be extremely useful in possibly ruling out a person of interest because when people are arrested, their palm prints are not taken. Their fingerprints are taken, but not their palm prints. So for a, to have, to be able to identify this palm print, you'd have to have something to compare it to. And you're not going to be able to like run it through the system and check it that way because the police do not keep record of palm prints. But the police do say it is a very good, solid piece of evidence if and when they do have somebody to compare it to. Uh, in the days following her disappearance, like I said, Paige's mom, artist, and her sisters came back from Georgia um, and they all joined in the search. There were thousands of flyers printed out with the information um, of what Paige was wearing, what she what she looked like, um, the car, the details surrounding her disappearance, as well as the family erected 25 billboards with Paige's picture on them, as well as information to um, get interest in to, to see if anybody remembers her. They are very uh, blessed to actually have a photograph of the exact outfit that Paige was wearing that day. Apparently it, it looks like it must have been an outfit that she loved because um, they actually have multiple photos of her in the particular pants and the shirt that she was wearing as well as the necklace. So I think that that in itself is a really good um, thing to be able to have. If you've seen the picture that is posted on the Michigan Unsolved Facebook page, um, I do include that photograph of Paige in that particular outfit. Um, so that, I think that is a wonderful piece of information. Um, and over the course of the investigation, over a thousand tips have been called in. Um, many recall seeing Paige that afternoon on the shoulder and based on witness accounts, um, there are six sketches that have been released, created and released to the public However, you know, I, I do find that these sketches, personally for me, I do not find them to be reliable. Again, I would like you to, when you're driving around, if you're listening to this podcast in your car or next time you get in your car and you're driving around, I'm not even talking on a busy highway, just driving around your neighborhood and to catch a glimpse of somebody for just a split second and to be able to give a reliable sketch to be able to give description enough to form a reliable sketch to me just does not make sense. Um, that's just me personally. You know, this is a podcast. I am giving you the information, but I do feel it necessary to provide my opinion. And that would be one of them is that I just do not believe that the sketches are reliable based off a split second. Um, you know, a split second memory and being that you're going at least 65 miles an hour. And some of these people did not call in the reports until 
after the flyers and the um, billboards went up. So at that point, you're looking at even a longer distance of time and it, the information is just, to me, does not seem reliable. So um, authorities um, are not exactly sure you know, why Paige was speak, why Paige had pulled over, why Paige had been talking to these men outside of her car on the highway. Um, I will say that, you know, not every relationship is perfect. Um, there is, there have been, I did see multiple reports that, you know, Paige and Steve's relationship wasn't perfect. Um, what relationship is, you know, my parents were married for just, just shy of 45 years and I could, there were countless fights, you know, during that time. Um, they loved each other. It, it, you fight. Passion is important in relationships. Um, so if Peyton and Steve ever fought, you know, it doesn't matter. The police thoroughly investigated him and ruled him out as a suspect. And I think that's extremely important because as you are aware, usually when people go missing, um, their significant others are generally um, pretty high on the list of people that, that are investigated. And like I said, he, he was he was thoroughly investigated and ruled out. So that is good. Um, it is also said that um, prior to her disappearance, Paige actually deposited a large sum of money into her bank account, um, which was left untouched. They do say that it is not known what that money was for, but you do need to remember that she was um, planning a wedding. She was just a few months away from her wedding, and I'm sure there were deposits that needed to be made and other things to do with the wedding. I'm not saying that's what it was for, but that money has remained in her account untouched. I'm, you know, I'm sure at this point it's probably been moved or whatever, but Paige herself did not touch that money. Um, in regards to trying to figure out what happened to Paige and, and all that, um, there were, according to the Charlie Project, um, three unsolved abduction and murders of young women occurred in the 1980s in the general area where Paige vanished. At around the same time, there were multiple incidents of people impersonating police officers and showing fake badges to motorists to get them to stop. And it is not known if these murders or other incidences are related to Paige's disappearance. Now, this is something that I found interesting because I also read that Paige's father had law enforcement experience. As to exactly what, I'm not sure, but I am I am sure that if her father was any way involved in law enforcement, she was going to have respect for law enforcement. And if somebody was pretending to be a police officer to get her to pull over, I would assume she would do so. However, even if you're impersonating a police officer, I highly doubt you're going to do so in a maroon minivan. Um, Maybe that's just me. I that to me doesn't make sense. I think if um if it was a different vehicle that she was seen with, that to me would make a lot more sense. 
you know, the imperson the the police impersonation, but uh, the maroon minivan just kind of pulls that one out of the water for me because those two pieces of information just don't fit. I, I just don't see Paige pulling over for a minivan. Impersonating, you're not even going to, you know, be an undercover cop in a minivan. It just doesn't make sense. Um, so, um, also police, also according to the Charlie Project, police interviewed, um, an unidentified inmate in a Michigan prison, and he was named a suspect in May of 2001. Uh, the man was in prison for carjacking, and his victim was a young woman, and the crime occurred only weeks after Paige disappeared. But police interviewed him several times, and they do believe that he was actually one of the men that were there um, when she went missing. But this individual took a lie detector test, and he passed, and the investigators eliminated, in, eliminated him from their inquiry. Okay. So, if you're listening to a true crime, a true true crime podcast, I am sure that you are well aware that you cannot um, lie detector tests, polygraphs are not admissible in court. They it just there's not enough validity to these tests. Um, you definitely cannot show proof of guilt with a lie detector test. And at the same time, you should not be able to rule somebody out as a possible um, suspect based off of a lie detector test, which it seems like they did, but that's just going off of what the Charlie Project is reporting. Um, I do use this as a um, verified source because the Charlie Project is um, extremely reliable and they do work with um, locating missing people. So I, I do find their information to be important. Um, as I mentioned, you know, there were, there were multiple sketches released. Um, however, I do not believe that, um, those can really be held reliable because of the fact that they were given by people who were driving 65 miles an hour down a freeway. Um, so according to CBS Detroit, and, and there are other multiple sources that this information came from, as well as the family, there was a letter that was delivered to police in 1999. So nine years after Paige disappeared, a letter mysteriously showed up at the police station. And um, this letter contained a map. And essentially, I don't have the letter. I, I've heard it read multiple times, portions of the letter I've heard read. Um, I'm not trying to quote it because I don't have a copy. And unless I can actually see it with my own eyes, I'm not going to quote it. But essentially, it says um, that this person knows where Paige was taken and basically gives a map to her location. So... Um, I'm not exactly sure what um, the delay was, but like I said, this letter was received in 1999 and it was not investigated until 2011. So that's 12 years later. Like I said, that bothers me, but I, I haven't been able to confirm as to why this delay happened. So 
On November 18th in 2011, investigators went to some private property after reviewing the map and the letter, and they used um, cadaver dogs. Now, the area had previously, and this is regard, this is according to CBS Detroit, is the area had previously been searched by ground penetrating radar, but had not been used by cadaver searched by cadaver dogs. So they brought these dogs in, and these dogs can actually sense human decay from many years before. So they were really hoping to get some hits. Apparently, they came up with about four hits. And they actually began digging that particular day um, to, you know, on these spots that these dogs hit on. But unfortunately, there was no evidence of remains at that location. So they were really hoping to give the family some kind of closure at that time. But unfortunately, it didn't happen. Um... Let's see here. Uh, there really isn't a whole lot more regarding the case itself. Um, there have not been any sightings of Paige since that day. If, like I said, in that entire area, even though it has been built up over the years, I've driven down that highway so many times myself. The amount of wooded area out there is is there's so much of it and so much open space. You just we just don't know. Um, there are other options as well and some theories that just a few things that I want to touch on. Um, one of the things that police suggest is that possibly um, the idea, like I said, of the police, you know, somebody impersonating the police. That is a theory. Um, it would make a lot of sense to me if the vehicle had been different than a minivan. That, like I said, just kind of throws it off for me. Um, another one was a possible accident. Whereas, I guess there was a little bit of front-end damage on the car. I haven't been able to get many details on that, so I really don't want to speculate. But I did... I did read that there was a small amount of front-end damage, but nothing glaring, nothing that would stand out. And there are some reports that the damage was there prior to that day. So I I can't hold any, any real validity to that either. Um, another thing that I had read was um, maybe she had pulled over because she saw somebody that she knew but again, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense either because if, if you're driving down the highway going 65 miles an hour, how do you see somebody that you knew? Now, she very well could have seen these people, recognized them, got off at the Fowlerville exit and then turn back around and then do a loop around. But there's like a, there's a lot of distance between the exits out there. So it's not like a quick turnaround if you were in a more populated area. So I guess that could be possible, but I, I just, I don't know. And if that were the case, that would add extra time onto the timeline. And there was already, it was already a pretty tight distance between the convenience store and the time she was first sighted. So I do find that a little hard to see her being able to have time to to turn around. Now, 
a couple of other things that I've thought about is possible um, human trafficking. Um, as I said before, Paige was, uh, you know, a former model. She was beautiful, you know, blonde hair, blue eyed. You, you really can't rule that out. Like I said, in 1990, I was only 13. I don't know a whole lot about that time, um, you know, outside of, you know, watching my favorite TV shows. I didn't pay a whole lot of attention to the news back then. And I honestly don't know if human trafficking was as prevalent back then as it is today. And as we know, it is extremely prevalent at this time. So that's just something to think about too. Another thing that has come to mind um, that I've never seen mentioned before, but I've thought about it a lot, is the possibility of a third vehicle. If, let's say there was a fender bender and, you know, somebody else, maybe somebody tapped her from behind, I... I or just even clipped her in some way, shape, or form, or made it appear that there was an accident of some sort, and maybe she was a witness. And I think that that's something to consider, is what if there were two vehicles in a collision and she was a witness, and but it was a stage collision. That's just something, there's just so many possibilities. So I want you to just to sit there and think about if you were driving down the highway what would cause you to stop? And I really do believe that that is one of the most important factors in this case is just trying to figure out the why. Why did Paige stop that day? What would cause a 30-year-old woman who was alone by herself to pull over on a busy highway? And I really believe that if we can find the answer to that question, that we will honestly have a much better idea of finding out what happened to Paige. Now, quickly, before uh, we say goodbye today, um, I wanted to tell you a little bit about Paige's mom. Because as a mother myself, the thought of losing my child and never knowing um, what happened to them is truly, truly terrifying. And unfortunately, um, Paige's mom passed away prior. She actually passed away in December of 2017, never knowing um, what happened to her daughter. And that is just truly, truly heartbreaking. And um, I wanted just to, to read a little bit of Artis's obituary here because they mentioned a lot of things that she was involved in. And although, yes, losing your child is just completely and utterly horrendous, something so amazing came out of that. Artists rose to champion for so many people, and she saw that there were so few organizations that had resources for families of the missing. Let me, let me just read this to you. On May 24th, 1990, Artis's second daughter, Paige, tragically went missing and was never found. At the time, there were few, very few organizations or resources available to the families of the missing. As a result, Artis devoted the balance of her life to supporting those missing persons. 
For 15 years, she served as the leader and program coordinator for the Mid-Michigan Chapter of Parents of Murdered Children, Inc. She was an active member of Missing in Michigan from its inception in 2010 and most recently served as administrator for the Michigan Cold Cases website. Artis was a speaker and invitee at numerous conferences and meetings, including the Department of Justice DNA National Strategy Conferences in Philadelphia and Sarasota, and at the annual Michigan Medical Examiners Conference. She worked closely with the University of North Texas and the, NA, the NAMAS program with Detective Sergeant Sarah Krebs of the Michigan State Police and with Senator William Van with the senator's office in the pa in passing the state of Michigan Crime Victims Rights Act. In 2005, she was the recipient of the of an award for Crime Victims Advocate of the Year award. She has been a dedicated supporter of retired chief police Michael Freyer along with the Livingston County Sheriff's Department Paige Renkowski cold case team. In 2015, Artis was given the esteemed and greatly deserved honor of being named the first Michigan State Police Missing in Michigan Advocate of the Year, and an award has been subsequently been named the Artis Renkowski Advocate of the Year Award. So Artis took something as sad and heartbreaking as losing her child and turned it into something so utterly beautiful. She is, because of her passion and her desire to help others, she turned Paige's disappearance into just this beautiful memorial, a living memorial to her daughter and a living memorial to hundreds and hundreds of others who are missing in Michigan and across the country. And with that, I have to say, you know, I know she's no longer with us, but thank you, Artis. And, you know, I know that um, Paige's sister, Michelle, is extremely active, even to this point, to um, still keeping up the search, still keeping up the information, keeping the Facebook page updated. Um, I did read that Michelle's daughter is actually pursuing a degree in criminal justice because she doesn't, you know, she doesn't want this to happen to other people. And I think that that's just wonderful. What a legacy that Paige has left. She has touched so many lives and she's not even, you know, she, she's missing and she's touched so many people. So before we close, I do want to just read the information one more time so that um, it is clear in your heads you know, who knows? This was, yeah, this was, you know, 1990, but, you know, you may remember something. And I know I've said that on almost every single case with the missing person who you don't know. You, it may just take one little thing to trigger a memory. So, as again, I will say, Paige Marie Renkowski was 30 years old on May 24th, 1990, Thursday. Okay, so this was the Thursday before Memorial Day. She was five foot tall, six inches. 
She weighed approximately 125 pounds and she had blonde hair and blue eyes. She wore a white silk blouse with loose-fitting, multicolored floral print pants. She had a long beaded necklace with green and gold beads and matching green and gold beaded earrings. She has a surgical scar on her right leg and a long surgical scar on the inside of her right arm. And although she was young, she had a she had two surgical screws in her left knee and her right knee had been replaced. She also had a scar on her right elbow. So these are very, very, very strong identifying marks. And um, I personally, I think that the beaded necklace is extremely important because from what I've read, it was, um, you know, very distinctive. So, you know, maybe, hey, if you remember something, again, check out the um, Michigan Unsolved Facebook page. Please join our group. I want to continue to continue to discuss these cases even after the podcasts have been posted. You know, if you have thoughts, please feel free to message me. Um, check out the pictures. I When this episode goes live, I will be including pictures of Paige, her vehicle, the inside and the outside, as well as what they believe the maroon minivan looked like. The picture that I will be posting is not the actual photo because obviously we do not know, but it is the best that they have based off of the witnesses. I, I do feel more confident in the description of the vehicle because that is easier to do versus faces going 65 miles an hour. So... Um, okay, so next week we will be getting on another case. I look forward to continuing that research. I do research cases multiple weeks ahead. I continue to work multiple cases at a time because they do overlap in so many ways. So please, if you think that there's a case out there that I should cover, as long as it's happened in Michigan and the and it's not solved, please reach out to me. I am always looking for new cases and... Um, you know, I keep wanting to give people a voice and I'm here to speak for them. So please, um, until next week, have a wonderful week. Um, tomorrow is Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. Hug your loved ones and tell them you love them. Have a great day, everyone. Bye-bye.